Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Now, views and opinions of Nature Talk are not necessarily the views of Talk Shoe, Jam Radio Productions, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. <laughs> Your Sunday evening form, Ancient Talk. Nation Talk is a live talk affairs and news program that deals with issues concerning you. From studios in Savannah, Georgia. Philadelphia in 1897, 
She began singing in the church choir, entered a vocal contest, and took top prize. A performance with the New York Philharmonic. Anderson went to Europe and returned home a critical success. At the height of her fame in 1939, Daughters of the Revolution refused to let her use their concert hall in D.C. It sparked a national outrage. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt resigned from the group in protest and arranged instead for Anderson to sing at the Lincoln Memorial on Easter Sunday. 75,000 people turned out. Marian Anderson, the contralto of the century. What are the limitations while employing minors? Stay right there. Today's legal alert might just keep you out of trouble with the law. Here's attorney David Gibbs Jr. of the Christian Law Association. A Christian school comprised of a K-12 academy and a four-year college allows the college students to work on campus to help cover the cost of tuition. The students never receive cash, but they are given an earnings statement at the end of the school year. The school's financial administrator contacted the Christian Law Association for advice concerning how to handle the financial records of 14- and 15-year-old students who work for the school. One of our attorneys explained that the minors should be treated exactly the same as the college students. Our attorney then advised the administrator to remember that minors are limited by federal employment law to less than 18 hours of work per week when school is in session. That's attorney David Gibbs, Jr. of the Christian Law Association. And you can continue today's dialogue by exploring the resources waiting for you at our website, christianlaw.org. You can sign up for our free monthly newsletter or connect with an attorney at christianlaw.org. christianlaw.org. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Now, views and opinions of Nation Talk are not necessarily the views of Talk Show and Jam Radio. This is Nation Talk. You will not be able to stay home, brother. to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox and Four Pops without commercial interruption. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised. Good evening and welcome to Nation Talk. Yes, the revolution will not be televised. Now even here on Talk Show and Nation Talk. But we will bring you... Our spin 
on public affairs and news as we do all, every Sunday for the last eight years. Tonight, Nico history stolen and strayed. That's what we're going to be talking about in our first hour. And during our second hour, a hell and farewell tribute to Billy Graham, who we lost this week at the age of 99. No song by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck on the rare earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. And that we are. We are live from the studios of Savannah, Georgia, Nation Talk. Uh, that was uh, Gil Scott Heron and his famous piece, 1970. The revolution will not be televised. Let's see how. Did you know that an Egyptian? Name Origen, O-R-G-E-N, was the first theologian to expound Christian doctrine in a systematic way. Or did you know that before Rosa Parks, there was a lady named Claudette Cloven, who was a 15-year-old schoolgirl who refused to move to the back of the bus nine months before Rosa Parks stand and launched the Montgomery bus boycott. Did you also know that one of the four cowboys was black despite the stories told in popular books and movies? Did you also know that up to 12.5 million Africans shipped to to the New World during the transatlantic slave trade, fewer than 388,000 arrived in the United States. Or what about this? Um, Did you know that When argumentally the most influentially of the North African Church Fathers is Augustine of Hippo, single-handedly shaped the entire Western Christian tradition throughout the Middle Ages. Now, that is some of the black history that you probably haven't heard. Some of these people you probably haven't heard of. And 
tonight in our program, in our first hour, we're going to explore that, that Negro history, black history, that was stolen and strayed. Very good documentary uh, I found, and I thought it would be interesting to uh, to talk about tonight. Um, I, I think it's, and because this is the last week, this is the last few days of um, Black History Month, I thought it wouldn't be robbery to have this have this on. Uh, this is a documentary was about the black history from the era of the 60s. Um, many still don't today. Uh, still, many people did not uh, let's see, many still Still don't today. Black History, Lost, Stolen, and Stray reviews the numerous contributions of African Americans to the development of the United States from the perspective of the turbulent late 1960s. The fact that their possibly, the possible positive roles had not generally been taught as part of a of American history, coupled with the uh, recessiveness of demography and stereotypes, was evidence of how black people had long been victims of negative attitudes and ignorance. Viewing the film today offers students and adults an opportunity to explore their own perspectives, examine how things have changed in their lives and those of their parents, as well as how troubling stereotypes still persist four decades later. So tonight I present to you our presentation Negro history, lost, stolen, or strayed. You can help 
No, I could never fit in that. Never get in that at all. This is more like it. Now, what's the whitest thing you know? Whiter than the driven snow, whiter than the whites of your eyes? Sugar. Non-integrated, non-black, sweet sugar. But you see, there is a black man in your sugar. His name is Norbert Rillier. Norbert Rillier in uh, 18... In 1846, invented a vacuum pan, revolutionized the sugar refining industry. Now, you have to dig to find that fact. I mean, it's not much history, but it's still history. Now, uh, what do you stand in? In your shoes. Now, there's just you and your shoes, isn't it? Nope. See, there's uh, a black man standing in your Oxfords with you. Sharing your soul and your heel is a man whose name is Jan Ernst Metzelker. And in 1863, this is joined by the kids, Metzelker invented the machine that made mass-produced shoes possible. Now, you have to dig around for that fact, too. And again, it's not much history, but it's history. Coming in clear to uh, California, I mean, is this TV signal driving through a pass in the Sierra Nevada mountains and slipping into San Francisco? Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Jim Beckworth. Jim Beckworth out of St. Louis, hunter, trapper, and honorary chief of the Crow Tribe of Indians. We had trouble finding you, Jim. Though you helped open the West, you didn't make the books. Chicago, right here where the Wrigley Building is. Young fellow by the name of Jean Baptiste de Salle. Jean Baptiste, he founded you, Chicago, when he traded with the Indians. And of course, there it is right at that particular time. It was called Eschicago or Stinking Onion by the Indians. And de Salle, he didn't even change the name at all. Now you take the Lewis and Clark expedition here, right in there. You'll find a black man named York helping to open the West. Those men are trying to wash the black out of York. That's what you might call historically significant because a lot of people think we ought to wash white, but we ain't gonna, you see. Texas, coming to you, Texas, right down the Chisholm Trail, right here. Right down there with 5,000 black cowboys who never made it to the Hollywood West. Did you know that, huh? In the same group, there was one black outlaw. His name was Deadwood Dick who claimed his soul brothers were Bat Masterson, Billy the Kid, and Jesse James. Did what Dick used to ride into the saloon, order two drinks, one for himself and one for his horse. And here's his horse, a drinking a shot of red eye with straw. And how about the 186,000 blacks who fought on the Union side during the Civil War? 38,000 died. How about Teddy Roosevelt's charge up San Juan Hill? It wasn't just the Rough Riders who made it. Four black regiments went right up with Teddy. They didn't get lost going up the hill. They got lost in the history books. How about the North Pole? Snow White? Well, the first man there was black, Matthew Henson. He spoke Eskimo. And uh, he was Admiral Perry's navigator. And although he made it first to the pole, it never quite made it to the history books. And how about your heart? Can we get there? All right. Daniel Hale Williams first performed open heart.
estimated, blacks who made history, but who didn't get into the history text at all. And the strange thing is how little there is about us in the textbooks. Napoleon once said, history is a fable agreed upon, and the fable agreed upon up to now is that American history is white on white. But sometimes we did get into the history books. All wrong. Now you take this one. The growth of the American Republic, 1942 edition. Samuel Elliott Morrison, Henry Steele Cummager. Quote, as for. This has to do with uh, slavery. As for Sambo, Sambo, Professor Morrison, Sambo, Professor Cummager, as for Sambo, whose wrongs moved the abolitionists to wrath and tears, there is some reason to believe that he suffered less than any other class in the South from its peculiar institution. Peculiar institution means slavery. Although brought to America by force, the incurably optimistic Negro soon became attached to the country and devoted to his white folks, unquote. Those lines were written by two Pulitzer Prize-winning white Northern professors. Slavery. That's the place everybody likes to start Negro history. You have ignorant black men being brought over from Africa in chains. Terrible thing, slavery. But this way slavery is taught, it sort of takes the sting out of it. Because the way it's usually taught, people think that we Afro-Americans started with nothing but little grass skirts like the cats in the Tarzan movies. And though America gave us slavery, America kindly gave us religion and a lick or two of education. And when we get more jobs and more education, up from slavery. But uh, we had something before we left Africa, something more than rhythm. I mean, we had a high culture. The culture was so high that uh, great artists in the world are still borrowing from it. Now, here's a sculpture by an unknown African artist. And here's what Paul Clay took from him. Now, here's a work by an unknown black African, and Pablo Picasso liked what he saw. Another African design, and Modigliani swiped it, or he was influenced by it, or whatever polite word you want to use. Another black African artist, and Picasso didn't change it very much. I mean, when you look at this copy, you got to give us a little more than rhythm. you got to give us style. Now, if you tell the history of slavery right, you've got a big problem on your hands. The slave trader didn't take some savage out of Africa. He took a human being. He sold him like an animal and separated him from his family. America invented the cruelest slavery in the history of the world because it broke up black families. After slavery was over, America kept breaking up the black man's family. Well, that's some awful history to teach. Now, if you want to look history right straight in the eye, you're going to get a black eye. Because it isn't important whether a few black heroes got lost or stolen or strayed in America's history textbooks. 
What's important is why they got left out. Now, this country has got a psychological history. There was a master race, there was a slave race. And though there isn't any political slavery anymore, those same old attitudes have hung around. I mean, the burning part of burn, baby burn, is right here in this classroom. We want to thank Mrs. Lovely Billups and the whole gang here at fourth grade for the brilliant and intelligent artwork that uh, they've done here to make this whole broadcast sing. I want you guys to keep pretending that I'm not here. You're doing a great job, and just uh, keep on drawing and reading and writing and doing what you have to do because I'm going to talk about some other kids. Not you, Mary, John, and Bob. These are kids from other schools. And did you know in some states it used to be against the law to teach blacks to read or write? Nowadays, we're getting these integrated school rooms, and most people think that if we get enough teaching and enough jobs, everything is going to take care of itself. But there is a scar of history running right through kids as young as these. It tears you up if you know how to look at drawings kids make, because kids shouldn't know much about history and anything about discrimination. I mean, nobody hates little black kids, but why do some of them cause so much trouble? And if you ask black and white children to draw themselves or trees or houses, some strange things happen. We ask some ordinary white kids from ordinary families to make some drawings for us. Like, well, let's call him John. John's white, and we asked him to draw himself. This is John. This is his house, and this is his tree. Then we asked a black kid, let's call him Ralph, to do the same thing. This is Ralph's drawing of himself. This is his tree. Now, why should two kids of the same age draw so differently? Enter the expert. This is Dr. Emanuel Hammer, psychiatrist specializing in children's therapy. Let me illustrate it for you. Let's take these drawings. No matter what a child draws, he's really picturing himself. Ask a secure child to draw a tree, and he's likely to draw a bountiful spreading tree. A black child drew this tree. Cut off in its growth. Stark bare, ungratified. It works the same way with drawings of people, normal children, average drawings. The mood is happy, the child feels capable, the drawings are complete, and the arms are developed to emphasize strength. These children were old enough to draw complete figures. The significant fact is what they left out, arms, hands. A child may sense that a situation in life is so powerless that he himself is equivalent to an armless man. My own study reveals that armless people appear three times more frequently in the drawings by black children than those by white. The faceless beings suggest that these youngsters not only feel themselves to be less than they might be, they don't even feel themselves to be. The black child who is forced to live in a hostile world may disappear in self-defense. He drifts through life feeling like a shadow. He stops caring and he stops trying. A child who has this on his mind cannot be a child. A child who has this on his mind could want to burn down cities when he gets older. The whole confusion was summed up by a black nine-year-old in these two paintings. This is a nine-year-old boy draws a white man, Robin Hood maybe. And this is how the same boy draws himself. And this is the consequence of deformed history. Linda, close the curtains, Brian.
Lower the screen. Bonnie, light please. In the past 50 years, 33,000 feature films have been made in the United States, and about 6,000 of them have had parts for black actors. For the most part, the black portraits have been drawn by white writers, white producers, and white directors for a white audience. Most black parts were the way white Americans wanted them to be. The black male was consistently shown as nobody, nothing. He had no qualities that could be admired by any man or more particularly, any woman. White people didn't like to think much about them, sort of like a relative uh, you got in a rest home. The happy darkies, dancing and singing, was all they wanted to hear about. Being good Christians, the whites out front like to think the blacks out back were kind of happy. Uncle Tom's Cabin was one of the first movies made that tried to say anything about black people. Uncle Tom was changed a little each time it was put on the stage, and all the parts were played by white actors. And by the time they made a movie of it in 1903, Uncle Tom was just the white man's idea of a good nigga. You might say he was what H. Rap Brown ate. They made this picture five times. By the time they finished with it, Mickey Rooney could have played Uncle Tom. Minstrel shows started as a black man's entertainment for himself and the plantation owners. When they were filmed, though, they were done by a white cast. You figure that out. They were done as sort of a joke, and the black entertainer couldn't even get a job making fun of himself. The first really vicious anti-Negro film was called The Birth of a Nation, and it was a honey. And the second worst thing about it was that technically, in 1918, it was the best movie that had ever been made. A cat named D.W. Griffith produced it, and he knew how. See? Birth of a Nation pretended to tell the story of the Civil War and what happened afterwards when the slaves were freed. White woman couldn't walk her own sidewalk, if you believe the picture. Negroes got the right to vote, and the movie showed black vote collectors refusing to accept white votes, and black people sneaking in extra votes. And if these black bad guys don't look very bad to you, it's probably because they're white actors wearing burnt cork. Negro legislators took over in the South, and in the film they were made to look like apes. And this was the movie version of how it looked in the Southern State Legislature. They drank whiskey, they ate chicken with their hands in the state house, and they put their feet up on the table with the shoes off. And of course, they passed all sorts of crazy laws according to the film, like anybody could marry anybody they wanted to. It was obvious to anyone who saw this picture that Negroes weren't fit to govern themselves or anyone else because they really weren't people. This film is 50 years old, and it may look silly and out of date now, but it didn't look silly when it was made seen. Several million Americans who saw it were propagandized to believe that this is the way things would be if they weren't careful. So they've been pretty careful. Colonel Cameron, a former officer in the Confederate Army, is all upset over the way Northerners and the freed slaves are changing his South, taking the mint julep right out of his mouth. 
So he takes a walk one day while he's worrying about it, and he sees two white kids playing, and then four black kids come along. Being hardly human and naturally afraid of ghosts, the black kids run. Earl Cameron sees the whole scene, gets his great idea. And with this, that great white all-American organization, the KKK, was born. The cavalry and the bedsheet has come to the rescue. The South is saved. In this picture, the Ku Klux Klan was the good boy who saved the South. Most Hollywood films, though, even the early ones, weren't really nasty. Nobody was sitting around saying, hey, let's take care of the niggas. What producers were doing was making money. And to make money, they made pictures that white ticket buyers would enjoy. They showed Negroes the way most Americans like to think of them. To blame Hollywood is like throwing a rock at the mirror because you don't like what you see in it. Burt Williams was one of the great vaudeville performers. He couldn't get parts in white pictures, so he made a lot of short comedies. He played the part most Americans consider typical Negro. It wasn't bad, really, just lazy, stupid, and happy the way he was. And his feet hurt. He was afraid of most everything. And when he was scared, he shook and his teeth chattered. Unlike a scared white man, the black man's eyes could pop out of his head. And when he was scared, he was so scared he couldn't talk. And he was also so scared he couldn't run. Black women, on the other hand, were steady and imperturbable. They stood like a rock on the face of things that scared black men. Another strange physical characteristic was when they were really very scared, the guys turned white. When you look back on these old films, the patterns come jumping out at you. The most consistent thing about them was the attack on the black man. He was never even given the privilege of being a man. He was a boy, as in, you know, here, boy. They had a lot of other great qualities besides being cowardly. For instance, they stole chickens. Yeah. 
I'm shaving and sweating at the same time. And Timmy, shove these cookies to match your health and wipe his chin. Yes, ma'am, Miss Bud. She was good to them, and they were good to her. Sort of a master and pet relationship. How would you like to see Uncle Billy dance? Oh! All right, James, let's get going, folks. This is Bill Bojangles Robinson, one of the great ones. But if he wanted to work and dance, he had to come into a picture through the servant's entrance. and she treated them real good. Look, Sally Ann. Look, Just like they were equals. Take to him your race for a wedding gift. 
the prestige of the white man. That means everything you stand for, and it is the only weapon you two will have. Prestige. But it is enough to preserve you. Yes, sir. And I'll try to remember it. If you'll kiss me. Even though most non-white natives of any place were savages in films, it often pleased white producers to endow a few chosen blacks with the virtue of great loyalty to him, the white man. Here's one defending Ann Hardy to the death. There was always one loyal and true black man who would do anything for his master. Some of them were wonderful people. You know if you really get a good one. Mostly, though, Negroes were not heroes. They were a bit part servants. Railroad force. Watch your step. Watch your step, sir. Well, this is your destination, folks. They made very good chauffeurs. Look good in their caps. Good morning, Colonel. And they were great at serving all kinds of drinks. Wherever there was a thirsty master, there were they also. Played in Germano. Oh, Lord, let me see that little six. Well, 
You understand? You've got to get off my back. the world of movies and the world of education get into the streets of black America, some strange things happen. Because what history and the movies have told the black man is that he's nobody unless he joins the white world. The white world only comes into the black ghetto by messenger. The message used to read, black is nothing, white is beautiful. For this reason, a lot of black people have spent their lives trying to be white. For instance, hair. Some people still call straight hair good hair because it looks like white hair. Kinky hair is bad hair. The man on the right is having his hair cut naturally. The man on the left is having a process. What the barber is doing is applying harsh chemicals to his head so he'll have straight hair like all those movie stars have. It's a painful, long job that costs about $6 and has to be looked after every couple of weeks. These days... Many young black men find the whole process demeaning. It's going out of fashion, even in the ghetto. It takes pain to become like a white man, and more pain when you know you can't make it. For a while, it seemed to the black community that the way to escape was to get as rich as possible and look as white as possible. And as affluence came to some black people, all the lessons of history and all the lessons of the movie seemed to be succeed on the white man's terms. So, the middle-class Negro took the white man's dreams and tried to make them his. Today, many middle-class Negroes have the education and the money to provide themselves with all the white man's dreams but one, universal social acceptability. He has not yet been able to join in any normal or casual way the white man's affluent society, so he has his own. The white man's attitudes still exclude the black man and the black woman. There's a fallacy in this country that says that any man by his merit can make it. That is not true. Do not believe that. It is not true. Because any man in this society cannot make it. That's where the whole fallacy is. The white man keeps saying to you, if you just stop being black, if you just stop shooting your, your, your people on Saturday night, just stop talking Negro dialogue, if you clean yourself up, get yourself a job, you're going to make it in this society. It's not true. I know for myself I have a master's degree in 
They won't accept me. They don't discriminate against me because I'm a Christian. They're discriminating against me because I'm black. The message down here is coming in stronger. It's be yourself, be black. The new generation of black young Americans is asserting itself in a new and possibly disturbing way. Many black Americans are giving up on American society. If you can't wash white, even if you have the money, if you can't wash white because you're basically black, what you do is react, sometimes radically. Here is a measure of the reaction to white is beautiful. This is a storefront school in Philadelphia. The children are being given a black preparation before they enter the city schools. They're not especially gifted children. They're just from the neighborhood. One black man named John Churchill put it all together and financed it himself. Right? You understand that? All right. A number is a concept of quantity or an amount. That is wrong. No. A number is a concept of quantity or an amount. That is dead wrong. He's not only teaching new math to children whose ages range from 17 months to five years, He's decided to give them the emotional armor they need to protect themselves against the education they're sure to receive when they start kindergarten. Anybody tells you something wrong, are you going to do it? No! All right. Um, what do you want, Jim? I want freedom. What do you want? I want my freedom now. No, you have to wait until next week, Jim. You can't have it now. Are you, 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 can you wait till next week? Are you a 
flunky, Travis? No. What are you? I am black and beautiful. And what else are you? Are you a boy? No. What are you? I'm a man. What kind of man? Black and beautiful man. Well, what kind? Are you an old man or a young man? Young man. Very good. Very good. Are you going to let somebody just make you a boy? No. All right. Suppose I tell you something wrong, Travis. Are you going to do it? Yes. You're going to do something if I tell you when it's wrong? No. Have a seat, young man. Eric, you're going to be reasonable, aren't you? No. Come here. Here you are, fine young man, right? Yes. Are you going to be scared of me? No. Are you going to be scared of some president of the United States? No. Some mayor? Some policemen? No. All right. You're a Negro. Yes! You're a Negro, Eric. No. Somebody pass me my stick. I said you're a Negro, boy. No. You're getting mighty soft. You're a Negro. No. Very good. All right, sit down. Uh, you, young man, you come here. Your nationality is American Negro. Yes. No. Your nationality. Now, look, don't play with me. You're a Negro. No. I am your teacher. You are a Negro. No. Suppose I threatened to beat you, what would you say? Aren't you a Negro now? No. What are you? I'm black and beautiful. What is your nationality? My nationality is Afro-American. Suppose I had some money in my pocket. Suppose I gave you a dollar to say that you're an American Negro. This is money now. Money talks. Money talks. This dollar. And if you don't say it, you don't get it. You're an American Negro, aren't you? No. You won't have any money. You know you need money, don't you? Yeah. You need money to live, don't you? Yeah. All right. All you have to say, Leon, is that you're an American Negro. Aren't you an American Negro? Are you an American Negro? No. What are you? I'm black and beautiful. What's your nationality? My nationality is Afro-American. Very good, man. Keep it up. Go sit down. You had to think about that a minute, didn't you? Yeah. All right. All right, everybody. What is your nationality? My nationality is Afro-American. Good. All right. What I did is what people are going to do to you in different ways when you get out of the school. They're not going to just come right up to you and give you a dollar or say, if you say that you're an Afro-American, if you say you're an American Negro, I'll give you a dollar. But they're going to be very nice to you, some of them, and they're going to try to, you know, get you not to love black people. They're going to try to get you to, you know, be something other than you are. They're going to try to make you, make it seem as though you're different from the masses of black people. And they want you to go away. They'll say, I'll give you special things if you just come along with me and do what I say. But you must reject that. Now, you know what that means? That means you're not going to have the money you'd like to have. And money is not important. We need money. We, you know, we have to buy things with it. But money is not the thing that we're living for. The only thing that makes a person worth living is being a man and being a woman, being strong in character, being straight, telling the truth, 
and living in the truth and doing the right thing. You understand that? So no matter what happens, I want you all to always tell the what. You may not get the marks you're supposed to get in school. You may be doing the work, but because the teacher doesn't like your attitude, and she'll always tell you, I don't like your attitude because you're independent, but you're not going to school for grades. You're going for what? Yeah. Um, right. And what kind of people are, is everybody in this room going to be? Tell me the kind of people you're going to be. Black and What else? You're already that. Yeah. What are you going to be? Yeah. You're going to be stupid? No. Yeah. What are you going to be? Excellent. You're going to be excellent. And what else? Yes, ma'am. Strong. And strong. And what else? And good. And good. And what else? A genius. And a genius. And what else? I'm looking for another word. All of you are geniuses right now. I'm going to be better than that. What else? I'm looking for a word that begins with a B. Brilliant. Brilliant. And brilliant really means to shine. And all of you will shine. All of you are really going to be brilliant. Good enough. All right. How does everybody feel now? Ready to get ready for lunch? Yeah! Who's hungry? That's kind of like brainwashing. Or is it? I mean, can you blame us for overcompensating? I mean, when you take the way black history got lost, stolen, or strayed, when you think about the kids drawing themselves without faces, and when you remember the fine actors who had to play baboons to make a buck, I guess you've you got to give us a sin of pride. Pride, hubris in the original Greek. It's 300 years we've been in this American melting pot, and we haven't been able to melt in yet, and that's a long wait. Listen, we've been trying all kinds of parts to make the American scene. We've been trying to play it straight and white, but it's been just bit parts. Now, from now on, we're going to play it black and American, because we're proud of both. Hubris. I'm Bill Cosby, and you take care of yourself. All right. What is a set? A set is a connection of objects. What is a subset? A subset is part of a set. What is a member? A member is one unit of a set. What, in terms of set comparison, does larger mean? Come everybody together. I'm going to ask you all a question. Let's see if you can do it. All right. What is arithmetic? Arithmetic is not a number. What is a number? A number is one What is, uh, in terms of set comparison, what does larger mean? Larger means that more In terms of set comparison, what does smaller mean?
When you went car shopping, you meant business. You aced vehicle history searches and test drives. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Andy Masick, the president Andy, here at the Heinz. Hey, everybody. So Jamie Lee Curtis here for RAD, recording artists, actors, and athletes against drunk driving. What should you do to We're stop a today. friend from driving if they've been drinking? Answer, whatever it takes. Think before you drink. Designate before you celebrate. Choose a designated driver. Remember, friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Hey, there's my son. You've been in your room all morning. Hey, Dad. Um, Matt, what's wrong with your voice? There is nothing wrong with my voice. Oh, well, it's just sort of... I have been playing my video games and electronic games for so many hours. Uh-huh. Well, it sounds like it might be time for you to take a break, or... Hello, Dad. Um, Susan? I have been watching TV and text messaging all morning. Yay, electronics. Yay, yay, Guys, I think it's about time to get in the car and take a little trip. Maybe see some trees, some green things. What are these green things you speak of? This weekend, unplug. Take your family to the forest. There's nothing in the world like experiencing nature firsthand. Trees, paths, bluebirds, streams, getting closer to nature can get you closer to your family. To find the forest nearest you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, views and peas of nature talk are not necessarily the views of talk shoes. And Jam Radio Productions. This is Nation Talk. The cosmopolitan hub of East Africa is Nairobi, Kenya, on the main highway from Cairo to the Cape. A strategic area not only for Africans, but for the world. Nairobi was chosen as the central point for preparation prior to the Kenya campaign. At a meeting specially held for missionaries and ministers, men and women came from all across East Africa. Cooperation was at its peak as Christian leaders and pastors from every persuasion within the Christian community gathered to share their concerns. into the faces of his co-workers in the kingdom. He saw the dedicated men and women who had gone before him across rivers and into villages, to the cities and the jungles of Africa, spending years of their lives in patient sowing of the seed, sowing where he had come to reap. The Nairobi crusade was launched with a fresh sense of urgency in a consolidated effort to bring in the harvest that they who had sown and they who would reap 
might rejoice together. You need to have your sins forgiven. You want the peace and the joy that he can bring. You have never really repented of your sins before. You have not received him. I know that you have listened through much difficulty through true translation. But God has spoken to your heart. There are many people today that need to come and say yes to Christ. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat and come. I'm going to ask all of you that will repent of your sins and receive Christ, and you've never done it before. God has spoken. You come. With these words, the invitation went out. Then came the harvest, a harvest which was sown in the blood of all the missionaries who had given their lives to win Africa for Christ. A harvest watered by the tears of the multitudes who have prayed for Africa ever since a man named David Livingston lived and died there. This was not just Billy Graham's harvest or the teams or even the missionaries. It was the God-given fruit of every moment spent in prayer and labor by every Christian who has ever cried out from the depths of his heart, Oh God, bless Africa. You're listening to Nation Talk. Welcome to our second hour. We are doing a hail and farewell tribute to one of the greatest evangelists since Paul the Apostle, Reverend Billy Graham. We're going to we'll be playing some clips of his some of his sermons interviews, different tributes, different things, but let me give you a personal thing uh, here. I remember years ago when I first saw Billy Graham on television, it was my mom had all four of us Include herself, sit down, watch Billy Graham. He used to come on prime time, which is by which is by eight o'clock. You'll stay on an hour. <clears throat> you'll stay on an hour. You'll stay on from eight to nine. After nine o'clock, we're off. It's off to bed. Uh, he has been influenced on me as a minister. He's been one of many who've been influenced on me as a minister. First with my great-grandfather, my grandmother, my great-grandfather, A.L. Thomas, my 
grandmother, Blanche Jenkins, friend Charles Singleton, which was my pastor. We went home to be with the Lord. Um, Matthew Salter Brown Sr. Like a, he's kind of like, he's like Savannah's Billy Graham. Matter of fact, he's 90, he's uh, 94, 95 now. Still going. And of course, Billy Graham. These have been my influences as a minister for many, many, many years. And I've listened to Billy Graham, watched him on television for many years. I it's even I even watched some of the um I even watched some of the old footage of his crusades from years ago. And you can still catch his Crusades on television, especially on uh, I believe TBN still. I think they still play his um, play his uh, his sermons on there. He's cross Billy Graham. As, as they're gonna tell you, he has been a uh, friend to. Twelve presidents, starting with Harry Truman. He's traveled the world numerous of times. I mean, numerous of times. Crusades everywhere. You name it, you you probably name it, he's been there. Uh, He's done interviews on television. um, Like, he has... Then he has um, led so many people to Christ. To it's 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 unbelievable how people got saved. A lot of people have gotten saved. So tonight we're going to pay tribute to America's preacher. Picture of our next guest, the Reverend Billy Graham. Reverend Graham is the author of an extraordinary new book, a book that some of my questions putting in the title, Facing Death and the Life After. There is its cover, done in black with gold and white lettering. It is published by Word Books. Before we talk about this book and the title, um, they're going to have an extraordinary thing at this Super Bowl. Both teams are going to get together for a prayer. That's right. Uh, that's, a, that's a marvelous thing. I know Dan Reeves of the Broncos very well, and I know Joe Gibbs very well. In fact, I called Joe Gibbs this afternoon and talked to his wife and uh, told him that I'd be praying for them while they have prayer because there's been some critical comments made about well, that. I think it's great. Together, right? This is a first. This is a first in the history of NFL, any kind of game, and I think it's tremendous. And I know you know Joe Namath very well. Oh, I know Joe Namath, and I uh, remember when he first came to one of our meetings, and Joe uh, uh, 
Bear Bryant brought him on the platform. Joe looked a little uncomfortable sitting on the platform. <laughs> and before, uh, He's a marvelous guy. Oh, the best. Before we get into the book, listen, Reverend Dortch is going to be here Monday. Are you kind of the seer of all of this, the first, basically, television evangelist? Are you a little embarrassed by all that's happened? Uh, yes. Uh, I have not made any comments about it. I stayed out of it completely. I had about 360 requests for interviews mm. on that subject from... Britain, from Australia, from different parts of the world, and I decided that I would just not say anything. Uh, but uh, I think most uh, clergy are a little embarrassed, but it hasn't hurt the church, it hasn't hurt the prayer groups and the Bible study groups, and it certainly hasn't hurt our work. How about the income? Well, in my own work, for example, it's up this year, the highest in its history, well, for about 4 or 5 percent, but our expenses are even higher than that. Admittedly, though, and, and I guess it may be hard because you are a modest uh, you're held apart from the rest, aren't you? Don't you think? Well, I don't know. We were, you know, when when they at the height of all the publicity and all the things, we held a crusade. We call them crusades in the big uh, stadium in Columbia, South Carolina, 90 miles south of of uh, Heritage Village, which I've never visited. Never been there. Never been there. Even though they have my mother's house at the very entrance, they bought it uh, from uh, the people that bought it from my family. I did not have any part of it. And they advertised that? Oh, my. I think they raised a lot of money that, uh, on that. And, and that you couldn't a, do anything about it? I couldn't do a thing about it. In what fact, I didn't, I didn't own any part of the house to sell it to this uh, entrepreneur who oh. was going to build the condominiums there. <laughs> what happened to your crusade? You do well? Yes. We averaged. We had the largest uh, religious audiences in the history of South Carolina every night. And people came from everywhere. And it didn't hurt us at all. In fact, uh, Maybe it helped. I don't know. <laughs> when you get the idea to write a book, and you go to the publishers, Word Publishing is the famous religious publisher, maybe the most famous. Yes, well, uh, they're owned by the American Broadcasting Company, and I didn't, went there because of them. Didn't somebody say, really, uh, death is something people don't like to talk about or read about, and certainly don't like in the title of books? Yes. Uh, fiction. I would say that two or three of the editors felt that it uh, was not the kind of a book that I ought to be writing. Why is right? But I felt that... Uh, the Lord wanted me to write it because we face death every day. It's the most democratic thing in the whole world. It brings us all to the same level. Everybody's going to die. And as Bernard Shaw says, it's the greatest statistic in the world. One out of every one uh, dies. And C.S. Lewis, uh, the uh, British uh, professor, uh, said that war does not increase death. He said uh, death is total in every generation. Everybody <laughs> that we see walking on the streets, everybody that uh, we see every day, they're all going to be dead. And we all fear it. And we all fear it. And we have a right to it. It's called the last enemy. It's called the great enemy. It's called the king of terrors. How does Billy Graham report it? Well, since I have received Christ into my heart, uh, the sting of death is gone. Now, for example, uh, last summer, my wife and I were coming back from Europe. We were on a plane. And suddenly there was an explosion. We thought a bomb had gone off. And the dishes went everywhere and the, uh, the things came down, the oxygen mask came down, all that sort of thing. And we never learned what happened. We were told later it was a bomb. And it was on an Air France plane. And um, they were having a lot of difficulty at that time. And uh, I didn't uh, feel nervous at that moment. It was too quick. But a little bit later, I began to feel nervous, and I thought to myself, am I afraid to die? And then I thought, uh, again, that it's instinctive to want to live. I mean, that's something God gave us. And if we don't have that sense of self-preservation, 
we would all die. We might go out and commit suicide. But I'm not afraid of death. I'm looking forward to death itself. I'm not looking forward to the dying process. In one of the great speeches ever made the night before he died, a man you knew very well, Dr. Martin Luther King yeah. said, if the Lord were to take me now, I have been to the top of the mountain. That's right. I've seen the other side. You have as well. That's right. I've seen the other side, and I've been with Martin Luther King, and we talked about it a number of times. Uh, mm -hmm. We went to Latin America together and spent a couple of weeks in Brazil together. What's there? What's on the other side? On the other side is either heaven or hell. That's true. That's what the Bible teaches. And you believe it. And I believe it, yes. And I believe that uh, for the believer and for the ones that uh, the Lord is going to take to heaven, it's going to be a gigantic experience. Is this a preaching book? Are you telling me find Christ and death's okay, and if I don't, death's terrible? In some places you would get that impression. I'm not uh, exactly preaching. I'm telling you to make out a will. I'm telling you what euthanasia is. I'm telling you... Uh, all of these things that are being discussed about death today, this is not just a, uh, a religious book. This is more than a religious mm -hmm. book. It's a, it's a practical book to tell you how to face death and then telling you about life after, ever after and how you mm -hmm. can find heaven and how you can make your commitment to God. And there, there's nobody who can talk about it better than you. Uh, when I was in the hospital, I don't want to get first on this show, but it relates to this book. I received a telegram from you, and you, you mentioned before we went on that you had prayed for me. That's right. Um, do you believe that there is someone listening to that? I do. I believe someone, that I believe it is God. And I've seen people on your show who feel that somebody is channeling through them and so forth and all this other thing that's going on. You but feel I, the presence? I, I sense the presence of God, but I do not hear any voices. I do not have any outward ex experiences like that, but I do sense the presence of God. And God, I'm certain, is with me. And when I come to the moment of death, I believe that at that moment, there's going to be an angel that will take me by the hand and usher me into the presence of the Lord. And I'm going to be in his presence. And it's going to be the most peaceful, the most wonderful, the most thrilling moment that I have ever experienced. You ever doubt it? Never doubt it. That moment on the plane, then, was more instinct. Than I think doubt. it was instinct. Right and yeah. doubt. Oh, I didn't doubt. No, because I've had so many other experiences. I, I nearly died in the hospital once. I was operated on twice for the same thing. And uh, I thought that I wouldn't make it at that time. And uh, there was no fear. Our guest is Billy Graham. The book is Facing Death and the Life After. This is Larry King Live. We'll take some of your phone calls to this distinguished member of the clergy following these words. Reverend Billy Graham, he had lunch with President Bush 43. Now, we couldn't take you to the lunch, but this is the next best thing. President Bush went on the record about his meeting with Reverend Graham and much more. Mr. President, nice to see you, sir. Thank you, Greta. And this is a surprise. I wasn't planning on seeing you here, well, except for the other day we planned it. Right. Well, no, listen, uh, thank you for being here. It's uh, both of you and I have had an amazing experience today, and that is to be able to talk to the great Billy Graham. How, how was lunch, by the way? Uh, fun. Uh, Laura and I and Billy and uh, uh, and Franklin and his wife uh, had a, a beautiful lunch. Billy is uh, in good spirits, and uh, he really he had a, an enormous influence on my life, and it was wonderful to be able to see him again. Well, you write about him, and the thing uh, that the sentence that caught my attention was, 
I was captivated by Billy. Yes, I was. And uh, he, he has such a spirit about him. He's a gentle soul. I mean, here's one of the most famous people in the world. And in in, in his presence, you, you realize how humble he is. And uh, his humility and obviously his love for God and Christ uh, can overwhelm the cynic. And I was a cynical person at the time. And uh, his his spirit overwhelmed me. Do you actually remember meeting him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What, what? Tell me. Well, I met him, first of all, uh, with my grandmother in Kenny Bunkport. He had come to visit um, my grandparents, my grandmother. And, of course, mother and dad had him over to the house, which is right next door to her house. And uh, at first, I, uh, you know, I didn't realize how, how, how big a man Billy Graham was. And he's a striking person to look at. And uh, But then the words started coming out of his mouth in such a gentle way that I truly was captivated. I mean, I was amazed. Uh, I wasn't sure what to expect, of course. And, uh, you know, in life you build up these images about somebody, and then when the reality is different from the image, it can it gets your attention. In this case, he got my attention. You know, I sort of get from reading the book, and, get, and tell me if I'm wrong, that uh, at the time you were sort of a questioning young man, yeah. and that meeting him sort of puts you in a direction with less questions and more certainty. Well, it did. I mean, one way, from a, uh, a kind of biblical analogy, he, he was started to help me plant seeds, and, and the and the ground was uh, the ground was pretty hard. But after meeting Billy, the ground became more fertile for the seed. Is one way to put it. Now he helped change my life. He truly did. And uh, I was a questioning person. I was drinking a lot, and uh, uh, and religion was you know I used to, I put in the, uh, the book and I would I would listen but never hear. And, and uh, Billy Graham helped uh, me understand the uh, redemptive power of, of a risen Lord. You know, so interesting. There are a lot of people who preach, um, but Reverend Billy Graham is, has affected millions. Um, any thought on, like, what's different about him? Uh, you know, it's just I, I, one way to look at it is he is an effective messenger because of his charisma and his heart. Uh, I, I had the honor when I was governor of uh, sitting behind Billy in San Antonio, Texas, at a crusade, and it was an unbelievable experience. Particularly when Billy called for people to come down to uh, to commit, and uh, it was a remarkable experience. And he was a, a magnet. I mean, he, the interesting thing about Billy, though, is not a magnet to Billy Graham. That's what makes him so incredibly effective. It's it's a magnet for a higher power. After 9-11, there was a, a service at the National Cathedral in Washington. He was invited. Yes, he was. No, no better person to represent the Christian faith than Billy Graham at the National Cathedral. We had people from all faiths come and talk about uh, the fact there is a God, and we will pray to that God in a variety of ways to help, help our nation. And, and Billy represented the Christians and represented them well. He's humble, isn't he? I mean, when you meet him, it's like you know, it was sort of, yeah, I'm surprised at the couple of times I've met him how well, humble man he is. He's a very humble, very disarming man. In other words, you're you're in the presence of a great a great historical figure, and you're not sure what to expect, and then his humility overpowers you, and that's what makes him very effective. You know, there's so many pictures of him with different presidents over the years. I mean, he's going back and talked to I don't know how many presidents. Well, which is great. I mean, look, I, 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 Billy Graham will be a friend to every president uh, because Billy Graham mission is to spread the word and um, you know and it, he, he's willing to preach to the most powerful and the, the least powerful and 
and people want to be in Billy's presence. I mean, I when I was president, I was uh, thankful that Billy came to the White House to visit. He has no political agenda. He has an he has an agenda of of, of the Lord. You know, it's sort of interesting. You know, so many people are um, rightfully so in awe of the president of the United States, but I get sort of a sense that it's sort of interesting when the president is in awe of someone else. That's right. Well, when you're president, you get to meet amazing historical figures, and uh, Billy Graham was one. And um, I had been a friend of his a long time, uh, ever since my grandmother introduced me to him. And he's had a big influence in my life, and uh, it was a precious moment to be able to have a lunch with Billy Graham today. I bet it was. Well, thank you, Mr. President. I know you have uh, lots of people waiting to uh, to meet you and uh, get a copy of your new book, the uh, signed book. And often nice to see you, sir. Thanks, Greta. It's also about the biblical call to care for the least of these, for the poor, for those at the margins of our society. To answer the responsibility we're given in Proverbs to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Mark uh, read a, a letter from Billy Graham, and it took me back to one of the great honors of my life, uh, which was visiting uh, Reverend Graham at his mountaintop retreat in North Carolina, and we had a wonderful conversation. And before I left, uh, Reverend Graham started praying for me as he had prayed for so many presidents before me. And when he finished praying, I felt the urge to pray for him. I didn't really know what to say. Uh, what do you pray for when comes to the man who's prayed for so many. But like that verse in Romans, the Holy Spirit interceded when I didn't know quite what to say. And so I prayed briefly, but I prayed from the heart. I don't have the intellectual capacity or the lung capacity uh, of some of my great preacher friends here to pray for a long time, but I, <laughs> I prayed. And we ended with an embrace and a warm goodbye. And I thought about that moment all the way down the mountain. And I've thought about it in the many days since. Because I thought about my own spiritual journey. Growing up in a household that wasn't particularly religious. Going through my own period of doubt and confusion. Finding Christ when I wasn't even looking for him so many years ago possessing so many shortcomings that have been overcome by the simple grace of God. And the fact that I would ever be on top of a mountain saying a prayer for Billy Graham, a man whose faith had changed the world and that has sustained him through triumphs and tragedies and movements and milestones, that simple fact humbled me to my core. The year was 1953. America's borders were filled with racial tension and uncertainty. The Reverend Billy Graham was sailing uncharted territory when he did the unthinkable. He held a crusade in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where thousands of men, women, and children of all races sat together and worshiped the Lord. But when God looks at you, he doesn't look on the outward appearance. The Bible says he looks upon the heart. He took his fight to end segregation to the streets. 
Graham had been preaching here at Madison Square Garden to thousands nightly, but very few blacks came. So at the suggestion of a colleague, he asked Reverend Howard Jones for help. Jones recommended that Graham take his message to the streets of New York, and that's exactly what he did. I decided I was never going to speak to any more segregated audiences. And he said, I want it to be that way. He said, what would you suggest that we do? I said, if blacks aren't coming, go where they are. He said, what do you mean? I said, go to Harlem. Graham preached at Salem Methodist Church to thousands. The next week, he went to Brooklyn. And slowly but surely, the Crusades in New York became increasingly integrated. Prominent singer Ethel Waters attended the event and rededicated her life to Christ. Graham even invited his good friend, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., to attend one of the events. We thank thee this evening for the marvelous things which have been done in this city through the dynamic preaching of this great evangelist. We ask thee, O oh God, to continue blessing him Give him continued power and authority. And as we listen to him tonight, grant that our hearts and spirits will be open to the divine inflow. Graham faced a flurry of criticism from both blacks and whites, but that did not deter him. Some whites want to know why you would fool around with these people, you know. And some said, if you're going to integrate your team, we will not support you, we will not give you money. So they used all kind of pressures on him. They said, I don't care. I'm going to stick by my gun. Some of the criticisms were that uh, uh, Mr. Graham was not concerned about the, the black community and that he didn't speak enough about civil rights. Graham went to Dr. King for advice. Martin Luther King uh, suggested to me that I stay in the stadiums in the South and hold integrated meetings because he was probably going to take to the streets. He said, I'll probably stay in the streets and I might get killed in the streets. But he said, I don't think you ought to because he said, you will be able to do things I can't do and I can do some things you can't do, but we're after the same objective. And so he did. I, I don't agree with him on a great many subjects. There are a few that we do agree on. Um, but uh, he certainly is the best in the world at what he does, and uh, Mr. Billy Graham. It's very nice to be with you, Woody, and I'd like to say that there's some things I don't agree with you on. <laughs> you know, but it's a question of which one of us will be converted by the time. <laughs> I hope I can convert you to um, agnosticism by the time the show is over. Well, I've had a lot of people try, and uh, the more they try, the firmer I get uh, in my conviction. Can I ask you what your favorite commandment is? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, right now, with a lot of teenagers, it's to honor thy father and thy mother. Really? That's, that's, my, that's my least favorite commandment. <laughs> well, I have five children and three grandchildren. And um, I believe all of them uh, follow that commandment. I think they honor their father and their mother. Now, that doesn't mean that they always agree with their father and their mother, mm -hmm. but to honor them, to love them, to respect them. I certainly did my parents, and if I didn't, I got it. Did you? I really got it. It's funny. I'm, I'm saving up my money as I get uh, a little uh, successful in show business, and I'm, when I get a little bit older, I'm going to put my parents in a home. <laughs> 
that's very good. I hope it'll be in a home with you. No, no, no. Are there any questions? Mr. Graham, I read that you don't believe in premarital sex relations. Is this true? It's not a matter of what I believe. It's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that premarital sex relations are wrong. It's funny. To me, that would be like, uh, you know, like driving a car, you know, getting a driver's license without a learner's permit first. Well, let, let's, uh, let's just, uh, let's just uh, see. Now, you know, we have to have rules to live by. And uh, what we're saying is we're going to play a baseball game without any rules. We're going to play a football game without any rules. We're going to live a life without any moral rules. Well, God has laid down certain rules and said, if you want the best of life and you want complete happiness and fulfillment, live by these rules. And one of those rules is that thou shalt not commit immorality. Ah, well, wait a minute. But if you're, say you're dating a girl, right? Well, I, uh, I don't intend to date anyone. No, no, but I am. <laughs> Let's say you, you. Okay, say I'm dating a girl. And say I'm going to marry her, right? She's, she's begged me to marry her. This was after a while. Or <laughs> what's even more interesting, I'm forced to marry her is what happens. And now, don't I want to get some inkling of the territory? Well, uh, you see, all, most psychologists today and most psychiatrists, I think, would agree with the Bible that there are very serious problems involved. God didn't say, thou shalt not commit immorality before marriage in order to keep you from having a good time or having yes, fun. Yes, he did. He said, <laughs> he, he said that to protect you, to protect you psychologically, to protect... Uh, to protect your body, because today venereal disease is at an all-time high in spite of all of our problems, and illegitimacy is at an all-time high in spite of all of our medical science, and all of these things, God said, I want to make you happy, I want to help you, and I've given you some rules to live by, and this is the rule. Well, now, let me ask you a question. What if I marry the girl, then, and then if I finally do get to investigate her carnally, and it turns out she's an absolute yo-yo? Well, I don't think that'll happen to you. <laughs> I'm thinking that's a hypothetical question. Yeah, but it happens to guys all the time. <laughs> what was the worst sin you ever committed? <laughs> <laughs> the worst sin that I ever committed? Uh, I had impure thoughts about Art Linkletter. <laughs> you ever committed? Uh, every sin is the same in God's sight. I mean, there is no such thing as a worse sin. Oh, really? I mean, if you wanted to find out which sin was the greatest, uh, I would choose, if I were forced to choose, mm -hmm. I would say idolatry, breaking the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Really, that one bothers you the most? No, that doesn't bother me. That bothers the scriptures. It bothers God. Because all the way God was teaching Israel, all through the Old Testament, that there was one God, only one that we're to serve and we're to worship. Right, and that doesn't seem to you as, say, an egomaniacal position. On God's part? On God's part. Oh, no, God is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's funny, when I look in the mirror in the morning, it's hard for me to believe that. <laughs> well, you know, in God's sight, you are beautiful. And, in, and everyone... <laughs> Because, uh, because God loves all of us, and he has the hairs of our head numbered. He sees the sparrow fall. He's interested in every detail of your life. He made you like you are. He made you Woody Allen, and he expects you to live up 
to a standard that he has made. And if you don't live up to it, then the Bible says you're falling short, and that's where you need God's help for redemption. schedule and you let me know yours and uh, we'll do that. I'd love it. You could probably convert me because I'm a pushover. You know what I mean? I have no convictions in any direction and if you, if you make it appealing enough and you promise me some sort of wonderful afterlife with a white robe and wings, I would go for it. Well, I don't promise you a white robe and wings, but I, I can promise you a very interesting, thrilling life. And one wing, maybe? No. You know, there's a guy in England that's the number one pop idol right now by the name of Cliff Richards. And Cliff Richards said, the other day, he said, when I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, he said this was 10,000 times more of a turned-on experience than any trip I ever took on LSD. <laughs> so you've got something in store for you. See, you've experienced some of these other things, but you haven't experienced God yet. And that's the greatest of all experiences, and I'd hate for you to miss it. Oh, I hate to miss it if it's there. The question it's is, there. The question is, is it there? You're you coming to our meeting, you said. Yeah, I, can I know the meeting will be there, but will God show up? Oh, I believe he will. Woody, do you think that you could ever make a good minister? <laughs> I'd like to answer that. I think yes, definitely. You think I have the traits of a minister? I think you do, because you see, some of the greatest ministers of history have been some of the greatest sinners of history. You have this terrific mind. You have this ability to communicate. God could use you. Really? That's like getting into the army or something. <laughs> no, it'd be a great experience. Yeah, would I have to wear one of those dark coats? And oh, no, 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 no. I can you dress don't like mine, do you? No, you, you? no, that's right, but you dress very conservatively. Well, that was because uh, uh, I was on a previous show earlier, and this is the way I had to dress on that particular show, and I didn't have time to change before I came over here to the studio. Do you think that I should... I would like to have worn a very loud coat. For, for this occasion. Yeah, something casual and people may care if you like. Well, this is rather. <laughs>
Earlier, we mentioned the tributes that are pouring in for iconic evangelist, the Reverend Billy Graham. Over six decades, he delivered his Christian message to more than 200 million people in 185 countries, including every president since Harry Truman. His eldest son, the Reverend Franklin Graham, is with us now. This is his first interview since his father's passing. And Reverend Graham, as we say good morning to you, sir, uh, we just want to send our heartfelt condolences um, for the loss of your father. Well, well, you know, thank you so much. I was in Dallas, Texas yesterday when I got word that my father had passed away. And, and of course, the, the news came out a few minutes later that Billy Graham had died. I, I kind of chuckled because my father said years ago, he said, when you hear that uh, Billy Graham is dead, don't you believe it for a second. He said, I'll be more alive than ever before. And uh, he's in the presence of God. So we rejoice and we're, we're thrilled that his suffering's over and he's, he's in God's presence. And, and Reverend Graham, what, as you think about your father in these last 24 hours, what is your defining image? Is it as a father? Is it as a preacher? What are you reflecting on? You know, uh, I just, um, first of all, he was my dad and I loved him so much. But he was a man of God. The Billy Graham that the world uh, saw on television or saw on the big screen was the same Billy Graham that we saw in, at home. He wasn't two people. He spent his life telling people about heaven, uh, how to get to heaven. He wrote books on heaven. Now he's in heaven, and he would want me to tell everybody watching that if you put your faith and trust in God's Son, Jesus Christ, that you can be in heaven too. And so my father's there, and uh, he would wish everybody watching would confess their sins and repent and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be what he would uh, Franklin received a letter this morning from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Speaker Paul Ryan uh, seeking approval to proceed with arrangements in the Congress for Billy Graham's remains to lie in honor in the rotunda of the Capitol next week. Uh, the family has granted approval uh, for the Congress to proceed with that process. And the Speaker's office announced that Mr. Graham will lie in honor in the rotunda on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday, February 28th, next Wednesday, until Thursday morning, March 1. Uh, Monday and Tuesday here on this property will be open to the public uh, for a lie in repose uh, where Mr. Graham's uh, casket will be in the Billy Graham Library. And um, uh, we had said that that, that line repose time for the public uh, could be extended uh, as warranted. Uh, it now uh, will not be extended beyond uh, Tuesday night. First meeting of his I went to, I was a student at UNCG, then Woman's College in Greensboro, 1951. He was such a wonderful man of God and a messenger of God. Will there be another one like him? I doubt it. Perhaps in my next, in another lifetime. Not in my lifetime. I came out to bring um, some flowers because Billy Graham, he was a man of God. He was so boldly, he boldly, he so boldly confessed the word of God. And I believe because of his service to humanity that he's truly going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. It is a great loss. It is 
It's very heartbreaking. Uh, I am truly deeply heartbroken, but I also know that he's in peace, that he's in heaven, a place that he professed that he wanted to always be. He worked hard to get there, and I know that he is there. And because he's there, I think even greater things he can do uh, from being in heaven and, you know, the prayers that he prayed for our country, I think we'll still be just fine. I'm holding up well. I'm still here. <laughs> and very thankful today. And uh, we are just we just have a great sense of gratitude today for the interest people have, people who remember him with appreciation. Uh, sadness, maybe a, a little bit of that, but for, for so long he's been right on the edge of eternity, as it were, and for him to slip away so quickly Wednesday morning. Well, it's surprising. It's, it's, uh, it's not overwhelming. I think you'd say, it's not about me. It's about the Lord. I remember at his last stadium meeting here in Charlotte, the mayor of Charlotte told us he was riding up the platform with Billy and everyone was cheering, and Billy said, wait a minute, it's not about us, about him. Years ago when I was 17 years old, Billy came to my hometown in Canada and spoke at one of our rallies up there, and it was kind of a disappointing night, but he came over afterwards and put an arm around my shoulder and said, I'm going to pray for you that if you stay humble, God will use you. So I'm part of that legacy. I think there's many other younger men and women around the world who want to make Christ known as he did and want to do it in the way that he did. I always say to them, lead like Jesus and lead not as empire builders but as kingdom seekers. He'll have many who will carry on what he did. We don't need more Billy Grahams as such. We need so many people to say, I want to be who I am as he was. By the grace of God, I am what I am, is what he's saying. You'd be like that, too. When we return, final word from Billy Graham himself. I'm in the car next to you on the highway. I sit in front of you on the bus. I'm one out of every six Americans, and I'm struggling with hunger. This isn't an uncontrollable epidemic. There's enough food in this country to feed every hungry person. Please, visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank. Every dollar you donate helps provide seven meals for those around you, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Okay, men, time to be an all-star caregiver. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Be there emotionally and physically. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find care guides at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You aced vehicle history searches and test drives. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Viewers of Peace and Nature Talk are not necessarily the views of Talk Show, Jam Radio Productions, and its sponsors. This is Nation. Before we go off the air, 
want to thank all of you for tuning in and to our broadcast uh, tonight. Thank you all for being part of the, of our evening forum, Sunday evening forum that we do here every Sunday night on Talk Show. And thank you all so much. Remember that the views and opinions of Nature Talk are not necessarily the views of Talk Show Generated Productions and its sponsors. This has been Nature Talk, a public affairs and news program that airs Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another Nation Talk here on TalkShoe and Jam Radio. Nation Talk is produced by Jam Radio Productions Presentation. Now, final words. Billy Graham himself. Grand Canyon University, private, Christian, affordable. There's a kind of pilgrimage underway. Politicians, moguls, true believers, all flocking to North Carolina to honor a towering figure in American faith, the man known as America's pastor, the Reverend Billy Graham. He turns 95 today, and so he gave his followers a kind of birthday gift. Here's ABC San Harris. The preacher seems a little slower these days, but his final message to America still clear as a bell. Our country's in great need of a spiritual awakening. There have been times that I've gone from city to city and I've seen how far people have wandered from God. This final sermon was shot over the past year in Billy Graham's mountaintop home in North Carolina. Here he is in his favorite chair with his dog by his side. This son of dairy farmers ministered to every president since Truman and brought the gospel directly into America's living room. But in private, he is a surprisingly humble man, married to the same woman, Ruth, for more than 60 years. She died in 2007. The Grams spoke with Diane in 1992. You know what his favorite meal is? A can of Vienna sausages, a can of cold tomatoes. And a can of um, baked beans, all cold, dumped on a plate. His favorite meal. A man like that, you know, has to be What a gourmet. <laughs> Throughout his life, it's been the gospel that has sustained him. Is there one passage in the scripture or one part of a hymn that never fails to make you feel great? What a friend we have in Jesus. That was Eisenhower's favorite hymn. And it's my favorite hymn. And today, on this video, what may be Billy Graham's final public prayer. I invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.
November 7th is my father's 99th birthday. He's entered his 100th year. Uh, what an amazing journey. Billy Graham has always been a man of milestones, and he's really reached a new one this 99th birthday. Most people say he's America's pastor, but that so understates it. If you interview people and who do you most admire in the world of, of everybody, whoever, you know, Billy's always at the top. How he persevered over a long period of time, I think that impacted me the most. He was intentional about his life. He was intentional about his calling. He never veered off from being evangelist. A model of spiritual proclamation and of spiritual integrity. He was used to being with presidents, but he would be just as kind to somebody that was serving him lunch. There was a kindness about him and a gentleness about him and a welcoming spirit about him, which is reflective of the gospel. He answered the questions, but it always came back to Christ is your Savior, Christ loves you, Christ is with me. Humility, integrity, and generosity. Billy Graham showed all three. I think Dr. Graham's birthday should be a, a time for us to reflect. For many years, I've had the privilege of being Mr. Graham's close friend and personal pastor. And so one can imagine the wonderful conversations that we've had together over these years. It's been such a joy to be blessed by him and to learn from him and to hear the things that God has placed in his heart. I've been praying that we might have a spiritual awakening, but I think that becomes possible only as individuals surrender their lives afresh and anew to Christ and live the Christian life wherever you are. First, we do everything we can to follow in the steps of Jesus. We're to live a life in which we love one another, we help one another, we live according to what Jesus lived. The Holy Spirit is the one that helps us live that new lifestyle, which is one of love, gentleness, and patience, and all of these things that are the fruit of the Spirit. remember that we communicate the gospel by our lives as well as our lips. We live before a watching world, a world that is waiting to see if what we say is lived out in our lives. We must be living in the power of the Spirit. We must be men and women who are pure vessels for God's message. Secondly, you read his word every day, the Bible. I know it's very difficult, but you need to start somewhere. And I'd suggest you start with the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, start with the very first verse. In the beginning, God. And study those passages. Make the Bible your source and your authority. Quote it frequently. Let its message be your message. 
study it, meditate upon it, memorize it, trust its promises, the Word of God itself has power. And the third thing, go to your knees and pray until you and God have become intimate friends. I cannot describe to you the joy and the peace that he gives to you as a result of that daily routine that you have in prayer. Is there a lack of power in your life? Perhaps you have neglected the preparation of your life with neglected prayer. We've neglected God's word in the beating of our own souls. Whatever it is, confess it, forsake it, repent of it, and then walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and gain victory over it. And may God today lift our vision and may the power of the gospel break upon our world with fresh force as we are obedient to Christ's call to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Hallelujah. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.